context is king. And when studying the word of God, especially when studying these I am statements of Jesus, it's helpful to remember that Jesus spoke these sayings, I am the bread of life, in response to something. He said, I am the light of the world, in response to something. So I'm going to expand our scripture reading a little bit this morning and give us some context for what Jesus was doing and saying. So Stan turned to John, we'll eventually land in John 8, but I'm going to start in John 7. So let's stand together. Here's where we are. The Feast of Booths, or Tabernacles, is happening right now. We'll talk a little bit about what that means in just a minute. But it's the last day of the feast, and Jesus stands up and declares something. And so this is what he says in John seven thirty seven. He says, on the last day of the feast... The great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now he said this about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive For as yet, the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they, that would be the the leaders, heard these words, some of the people said, this is really the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem? the village where David was. So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, one of the Pharisees, who had gone to him before in John chapter 3, and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man first without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Verse 12 of chapter 8. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you do not know where I came from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh, and I judge no one. Yet, even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, 
it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. This is God's word. So, Father, as your Son declared of his own divinity that he is the light of the world, we now offer a prayer for illumination. That you would open our eyes that we may see, our ears that we may hear, and our hearts that we may understand. Do all this, we pray for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Be seated. Thank you for indulging me that um, little bit of discourse into the context of what Jesus was saying and the occasion uh, that Jesus was saying the things that he was saying in. Um, it's no secret that in various cultures, um, we celebrate the really important moments of our, of our history with celebrations, right? Before I moved to Texas, I didn't actually know that Texas Independence Day was a thing. I have since been corrected. When we were first here, we went down to San Antonio in August I've since been corrected. We went to SeaWorld, which is a thing. And at SeaWorld, because everybody needs dancing characters, they had, um, they had the dancing Sesame Street characters. And so you had Grover, and you had Big Bird, and you had Elmo. And at that point, um, almost four-year-old Nate, uh, three-and-a-half-year-old Nate was very excited um, it's also tricky to convince a three-and-a-half-year-old that you're going to get woefully dehydrated if you don't drink, but that's a, that's a separate story. So the next day, we were very grateful uh, to be doing an indoor activity. We went to that famous spot in San Antonio that everyone's supposed to remember. There were a lot of people there that were really into the history. I was into the fact that it was indoors. We're inside. We're walking around the building. And I hear my son kind of quietly sobbing. I said, what's wrong? And he looked at me. He said, Daddy... Where's Elmo? Because we had told him we were going to the Almo. (laughs) 
I've since been corrected. Whether it is remembering those watershed moments, whatever your culture's history is, there is feasting and celebration and a retelling of the story that surrounds those significant watershed events. You and I do it uh, perhaps in our relationships as we recall with our spouse when first we met and the circumstances of our engagement and marriage. Um, Every year, Israel would gather and retell their collective story through keeping the feasts that God had appointed. The story that began with painting uh, the blood of a lamb over the doorpost of your house so that the angel of death would pass you by and then a meal eaten in haste because you were getting ready to go. Exodus means the road or the way out. They needed a way out. God led them out. God led them out into the... God led them out into the desert. And in the desert, there was a bit of grumbling. There was a bit of, why are we here? Nevertheless, there was God who sustained them. He sustained them through manna in the wilderness. And you'll remember last week that those who had received the feeding of Jesus looked to him and said, but Moses fed us for 40 years. You fed us for a day. And Jesus said, not quite. My father fed you for 40 years. And if you knew the bread that I was offering you, you would understand that I'm not feeding you for a day. I'm feeding you for eternity. There were still other um, signs. Uh, This particular feast The Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles came at the end of the harvest. This was the end of the the harvest season when all the grain had been harvested and God's people would go and they would dwell in tents to be reminded of their time in the Exodus. And it was was then that, uh, that Jesus stood up and drew attention to another thing. You remember that not only were God's people hungry in the wilderness, they were also extremely thirsty in the wilderness. And what did God command Moses to do? He said, extend your staff over the rock. And what came out of the rock? Water came out of the rock. Water came out of the rock. And so what did Jesus do? Jesus, in John seven thirty seven stands up among the crowd on the final day, on the great day of the feast, the great day of commemorating God's faithfulness, of sustaining the people in the wilderness. And he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. Whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow streams of living water. This is a big, symbolic, significant deal. It was also during the Feast of Booze that um, every year the temple would be lit. Huge, huge candelabras of oil-filled basins would be lit in the temple to remember and be reminded 
of the way that God's people were also provided for in the wilderness. Because it wasn't just that God gave them manna on the ground to collect and eat and be sustained. It wasn't just that God caused water to flow from a rock so that their thirst would be satisfied. It was also that God's people were, were, were gathered and moved by a pillar of cloud and fire. And so again, God's people at the Feast of Tabernacles, at the Feast of Booths, would light these grand and glorious and huge candelabras so that light would spill out from the temple to remember that God had sustained them and guided them through their, uh, through their pilgrimage. These lamps uh, were over 75 feet high. All night long, the history says, their brilliance would shine, illuminating the city. In celebration and anticipation, the holiest of Israel's men danced and sang psalms of joy and praise before the Lord because this festival was a reminder that God had promised to send a light, the light, to a sin-darkened world. One of the first pieces that I learned how to sing as a bass from Handel's Oratorio Messiah was a setting of Isaiah 9-2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. But it's interesting, isn't it, the context of Isaiah 9. Because if you go back and read it, starting in the context of verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. After Jesus had declared himself to be the one who provides streams of living water, do you remember what they asked? Is the Christ to come from Galilee to Nicodemus? Are you from Galilee too? Jesus continues in his teaching during the Feast of Booths. And in response to this, he says, what? I am the light of the world. What's the meaning and the magnitude of Jesus' claim here? The meaning and the magnitude of Jesus' claim is this this was the prophecy that God would illuminate the world that was the world that was drowning in the darkness and deception of sin and misery would find once and for all illumination to break forth but it would not be an impersonal light it would be um, it would be Jesus Jesus declares that the light promised is deeply personal it is a person it is him it is not a light jesus says it is the light jesus is the manna from heaven that would feed and satisfy jesus is the living water that would flow and quench thirst and jesus is the light remember the way that this worked in god's people's lives in the exodus when the light moved they moved when the light stood still 
They made camp. The light was their, it was their source of guidance in their uh, wilderness pilgrimage. The light was the comfort of God's continual, abiding, personal presence among his people. And the light that Jesus said he is, is a light that doesn't just provide sight, but a light that provides life. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. When Simeon, when Jesus was presented in the temple, and Simeon beheld the glory of this child being presented, he said, Lord, now let thou thy servant depart in peace, for mine eyes have seen the glory of thy people. Israel, a light to lighten the Gentiles. Simeon saw it right away. He said, I can go now. I can go now. The promise is fulfilled. And the Savior has come. A light to lighten the Gentiles. And the glory of God's people, Israel. Um, When Jesus said, I am the light of the world, this was not a, a statement of a quality of Jesus. This was a statement of the divinity of Jesus. It was, a, it was continuing in the revelation of God that he gave to his people when he first summoned Moses to the holy place there as the, as the bush cat fought, caught fire but was not consumed. And Moses said, who shall I say then has sent me to rescue the people? What is your name that I may tell them? And God says, tell them I am has sent you. The Lord, I am. When Jesus said in the Greek, I am. He was saying it in the strongest possible way. He was using redundant and repetitive words in order to make clear that he's not just saying something about himself um, in in an abstract sense. He's saying something identifying about himself in the divinity sense. I am the light of the world. And as Simeon sang, and as Jesus declared, This was not just a light for Israel. This was a light for all of God's people. This was a light for the world. The whole world. This this glorious, unqualified, expansive, pan-national gospel of our God going to the entire world. Jesus said, I am that light. Again, disrupting and challenging any other source of light. And look what's more, Jesus said that whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will follow the light of life. He will have the light of life. The light is not around us, but in us. Just as the cloud of fire led the the rafts of Israel through the desert into the promised land, so Jesus leads us in our pilgrimage through the world Uh, into the glories of the life of the world to come. Now, it would be great. It would be awesome just to, to sit back and to soak and to reflect, no pun intended, on the light of the world. 
But that's just one verse. The text goes on. Because there's another thing that's at play, and this is what's important for us to see today. It's not just the fact that Jesus is the, is, the, is the better, the final, the fulfillment of the light that would ultimately guide and protect and illumine God's people and lead them through their pilgrimage in this world to the world to come. But there was also, there was also a moralism that was blinding Jesus' enemies. They said, our light is sufficient, thank you very much. Our laws are quite sufficient. Let's remember something. The very thing that bound up and blinded the Pharisees was their belief that fundamentally they were okay. and I are not that much different. Fundamentally, we believe we can see just fine. We can do just fine. Thank you very much. In this text, the Pharisees, the chief priests, show the enslavement of their own heart in two ways. First, that they have sufficient light to see, that their light is their light's perfectly fine. And secondly, their pathway to God is secure because their laws are sufficient. They're perfectly fine. As we're going to see next week, the gatekeepers of Israel, the, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, have failed Israel. They have failed them in telling them, uh, as we'll see next week, who's in and who's out. This week, they have failed because they said, no, 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 no. We don't need another light. Our light's just fine. So they go to Jesus because the things that he has spoken are incredible. These are are incredible claims to make about oneself. He's declared himself to be the true and better manna, the bread of life, and at the feast, he has declared himself to be um, the, the fulfillment of the better water flowing from the rocks that sustained the Israelites in the wilderness. And now he has said quite succinctly at the conclusion of the Feast of Tabernacles that he's the light of the world. The Pharisees, the Pharisees claimed light sufficient to see, but they were really blind. They were blind and they couldn't see the Messiah that all Scripture pointed to. So verse 13, they challenge him. The Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. But back in 51, do you remember what Nicodemus said? He, he ra- kind of raised the point of, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? So right away. They've begun anyway, saying, we're sorry, it's invalid testimony. Move to strike, your honor. Multiple witnesses are required, and there are none here to corroborate you. But see, this this is sleight of hand, right? Because in, in the Jewish law, 
The only time that multiple witnesses are required to corroborate a case are in capital offenses where the death penalty is a possibility during a formal hearing. This is neither of those things. They were blind. They couldn't see. We can see just fine, they said. Secondly, um, they actually did have multiple witnesses. They were just choosing to ignore them. John the Baptist, a prophet, identified Jesus as the Messiah. And the Pharisee Nicodemus admitted in John chapter 3, we know that you are a teacher come down from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. In John chapter 5, they had heard the testimony of the lame man healed at the pool. If it was witnesses that they were really seeking, they had sufficient ones. It was all sleight of hand. They weren't, they weren't seeking witnesses. Because they weren't, they weren't actually serious about Jesus defending himself. Because what they were really saying is, our light is sufficient. Yet they're blind. And they can't see. Jesus... Jesus challenges them that it's there when they said that they they could see it shadows masquerading as sight it shadows masquerading as sight now I've had this happen to me before um, one of my uh, one of my neat party tricks that I'm able to do um, especially in times of uh, heightened uh, stress is to have night terrors um, wherein I see in the shadows of the room something that's there that's not really there. Um, which is horrible, by the way. And Jen's just learned at this point to yell at me, punch me, or threaten to turn the light on. At which point I will generally settle back down and go back to sleep. Generally. The Pharisees are seeing things that aren't there, and their shadows that they are claiming are real are nothing more than figments of their imagination. Their shadows are masquerading as sight. Because here's the reason they don't believe. Unbelief is never because the facts are insufficient. Unbelief is not an intellectual matter. The behavior of unbelief is all informed by the belief of a sin-sick, self-absorbed heart. They go on pressing him. Because Jesus said, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you don't know where I came from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. Jesus said, okay. If we want to do this mock courtroom drama, this really bad episode of Law and Order, let's talk about that. You're saying your laws are sufficient. I'll play by your game. Let's appeal to the standard of the laws that you're appealing to. So C.S. Lewis wrote a famous essay about this encounter that Jesus had with the Pharisees. Uh, it was an essay entitled God in the Dock. So in, um, in, legal in legal terms, the dock was the place where the defendant stands in a legal proceeding. 
The judge sits in the bench, and the accused stands in the dock. So what, what C.S. Lewis was reflecting on was the thing that we have already seen in this text. Um, the lack of a sense of sin that cries for a Savior, we can see just fine. Thank you very much. But there was another problem. Listen to what Lewis says. For those keeping score from the adult Bible class, this was the thing that I said I was going to mention this morning. So here it is. C.S. Lewis says this. He says, the ancient man approached God, or even the gods, as the accused person approaches his judge. But Lewis says, for the modern man, the roles are reversed. For the modern man, he's the judge. God is in the dock. Now, the modern man is quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war and poverty and disease, the modern man, as the judge, is quite ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. This is the problem. The Pharisees have set themselves up as the judge, the arbiter of right and wrong, the gatekeeper of light and darkness, the ones who will ultimately authenticate and give testimony to whether or not Jesus is right, rather than the other way around. Jesus is the God of the universe, not some lowly accused standing in the dock pleading his case before the judge. It's outright foolishness to think that we could insist that Jesus stand trial before us and prove himself to be worthy of our acceptance of him. And Jesus states clearly that he wasn't here to play the Pharisees' game. Verse 15, I judge no one. In this time of Jesus' ministry, he has come in his incarnation as the Redeemer and the Savior. This is not his time to come as the judge. His second coming is when he comes again to judge. The blind Pharisees had made their laws their gods because they could put God in the box. They could put God in the dock. So Jesus said, okay, verse 17 and 18. In your law, he says, that's a fun one, isn't it? The author of all the divine laws to be like, all right, in your adaptation of your addendum to my father's word, it's written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself. And the Father who sent me bears witness about me. He shows them that in their law, all that's required is the testimony of two people. Before them stands the testimony of the divine Father and the divine Son. If the testimony of two ordinary people is sufficient to settle the case, how much more so then would be the testimony of the divine Father and the divine Son? Jesus used another I am statement, although it's uh, not one of the famous ones. He just said, I'm the one who bears witness about myself. 
And the Father who sent me bears witness about me. The Pharisees at this point pounced, as you would expect them to. Oh, your father, they say. Your father. Tell us about him again, because it's not Joseph. We're pretty sure we all know that. So produce your father. Show us who he is, they say. In their minds. They were not desperate sinners before a holy and righteous God who needed mercy for they could have nothing else. Instead, they had God in the dock. They had a handle on the law, a handle on what God wanted, a handle on what needed to happen to be good enough to please a distant and disengaged God. This too is us. This is the thing that we need to be called back from, to be continually reminded of. We are not the one that God owes answers to. We're not. We're not the ones that God owes answers to. We're not the ones that are uh, owed explanations. We're not the ones that put God on trial as if we're test driving a car or trying out a piece of furniture. We are the ones in the dock. We are the ones who are in desperate need of a Savior because we are dead on the inside and we are perilously Uh, hurtling towards our eternal damnation apart from the intervention of a loving and kind and gracious God. It's not God in the dock, it's us. We can't see, we're blind. Our minds are playing tricks on us. It's like sometimes at night, mind plays tricks on me. We see things that aren't there. We see a righteousness that isn't there. We see a goodness that isn't there in us. We say that we're fine because we look at all the ones worse than us and say, he's got plenty of stuff to deal with in all of them. But it's us, but it's you and I, but it's me. I'm the one. I'm the one who operates with a heart that is so painfully turned in on itself that it can't see anybody else but itself. I'm not the one that stands in the seat and then judges what's right and wrong. I'm the one that cries out for mercy. I'm the one that says, I'm blind and I can't see. I'm hungry and I can't stop the hunger pangs. I'm thirsty and I can't find enough to quench the thirst. And it's Jesus that says, I'm the bread of life. I'm the one that provides water. I'm the one that provides light. If anyone were to follow me, will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus rebuffs the Pharisees' blindness that masquerades at sight. 
Because it's not blindness masquerading as sight that Jesus welcomes. It's the boldness of faith. The boldness of the cripple. The boldness of the lame. The boldness of the outcast. The boldness of the teacher of the law who wants to know if Jesus is for real. The boldness of the prostitute and the boldness of you and I to come and say, actually, I'm not here to test you. I'm here to trust you. Are you who you say you are? Because if you are, I need you because I have nothing else. I am the one that bears witness about myself. And the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus said, you neither know me or my father. If you knew me, you'd know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. We had we had talked back when we studied the Gospel of Mark together that Mark was the shortest of the four Gospels. And so whenever Mark wrote a detail, it was really important to note the details because he didn't have to note them, but he did. And it's easy in John's Gospel because John's a little bit more verbose and John says a little bit more to, to, to give John a pass on the words that he uses. But that's a weird one in verse 20. Why would it matter in the least to, our, to the readers and to the hearers of this gospel where Jesus was saying these things? The treasury. It's an, it's an odd detail. It's an odd detail until you unpack the layout of the temple. Because the treasury would have been adjacent to the court of the women where offerings were made. And it was at the court of the women where the huge 75-foot candelabras would have been filled and lit. It was in the treasury that Jesus said, I and the light of the world. You wonder why it incensed them so. Jesus just stood in the place where light was lit, anticipating the one light to come, and said, here I am. But our light is sufficient, and our light has not yet come, because our light doesn't associate with sinners and tax collectors and outcasts our light comes to make our nation great again. But his hour had not yet come. And no one arrested him. No longer would light be symbolic, Jesus said. Light would be deeply personal. As God's word often does, it leaves two simultaneous, two simultaneous ways uh, in which we can respond to it. For those that would recognize our blindness and see uh, the light 
flooding out from the temple as the one and only Son of God, the promised Messiah and Savior of sinners, there is good news. There is good news for those who go and say, I'm not here, I'm not here to say that I'm your judge or I'm the one that you have to prove yourself to. I'm the one that needs you and no one else but here but you. I'm not here to test you, I'm here to trust you. Do you know what the good news is for you this day? The good news is that Jesus says, Come to me and live. the one that says, I'm not here to trust you, I'm here to test you. There's a difference between the Thomases in the room who simply wrestle with doubt and need Jesus to show them that he's real. There's the difference of the Thomases to the Pharisees. But as Nicodemus shows us, God welcomes the Pharisee too. But there is an expiration date on when God welcomes as the Redeemer before God looks and judges the world. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. How are you seeing? Are your eyes doing you justice? Or do you need help? 